Thank you, everybody, for joining today. It's a packed house. There is tons of people on the line as well, and we'd like to get to as many questions as we can. So I will hand it over to the Premier, uh, and then we'll go right to questions in the room, um, and then I'll take some online as well. Uh, just a reminder, it's one question, one follow-up, like it usually is. And uh, take it away, Premier. Well, thank you, Becca. I got to know Becca on the campaign trail. She was working with... Rebecca Schultz, and I hope that you will see as we put this team together that we are drawing from all the great talent among all of the leadership candidates, but Becca will be your principal point of contact. Uh, I should just mention as well that I come from the media. Some of you may know that I had a history in the mainstream media, starting with the Calgary Herald on the editorial board in 1999, so I know that you have a job to do. I would have been down here on time, but I heard CBC needed a little bit of extra time, by the way. So I know you were probably wondering CPE. how long I'd CPE. be. A CPE. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> CPE. It's needed the first time, time we've done one in a while. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, because there was a, uh, I guess this is one of the first times you've been back in this room in some time, but my intention would be for us to continue meeting here. I know it's a little bit more convenient for you. I like tradition. And so I, uh, I hope that this works for you because it certainly does work for me. I did make uh, opening comments this morning at my swearing in. I'm quite happy just to get into um, a little bit of Q&A. I should just tell you a couple of key points that are coming along. We have had a, a cabinet meeting, and so we did pass a couple of uh, orders. One, we had to make sure that by-election writ materials make reference to His Majesty, and so that was one of the uh, changes that were made. There's probably going to be thousands of orders in council like that, but since those are going to be the documents that are going to be used in short order, we had to make that change. And we also got uh, unanimous approval to launch a by-election in Brooks Medicine Hat, which is uh, where I have announced my intention to see the, um, the, the, uh, the position. I have already given indication to the party. Our party, if you want to know our party process, is that we do have four nominations that the leader is allowed to elect to appoint somebody, and I have indicated to the executive that I would like to use one of those appointments to appoint myself as the candidate for the UCP in, in that by-election race. Um, we are also going to have a caucus retreat on the 17th, 18th, and 19th. I'll be meeting one-on-one -on -one with all of my caucus members. I also will be meeting one-on-one -on -one with all of the members of the public service to get briefings. And my intention, my intention is to uh, announce cabinet on October the 21st, going into our weekend AGM. We are having our AGM at the River Creek Casino on the 21st, 22nd, 23rd. And then on October the 24th, we will meet again at Government House and swear in a new cabinet. And I'll, uh, I may talk with you before then, but that would be my intention, would be to have another uh, chance to see you again on October the 24th. So with that, I'd be happy to take any questions. The, uh, uh, I'm a bit confused now on where we're going with the Sovereignty Act. I know it's not written yet, but I think Albertans deserve to know the broad strokes of where we're going to read the rule of law. Okay. So you stressed in your campaign as recently as September 6th that the Act would give your government legislature the option to ignore court rulings. On the weekend, Rob Anderson said, no, no, we're going to actually follow Supreme Court rulings. And your office sent me a note saying, Daniel Smith respects the rule of law. Mm -hmm. You're on Jesperson this morning, and any you reiterate, no, we're going to ignore federal laws if we want to. So now I'm a bit confused. I mean, we're at a situation where we're going to follow the courts, but not the laws. Can you sort of explain to Albertans where you're going broadly with the rule of law? Well, I think we know in our, in our country we have a bit of a unique constitutional situation where we have exclusive powers granted to the federal level of government 
and exclusive powers granted to the provincial level of government. We also have a court that acts as a, a referee, and there's multiple levels of, of court, and sometimes decisions get overturned up to the level of the Supreme Court. When the Supreme Court makes a decision, we have to abide by that. Um, people have asked me through the campaign trail whether I would ignore the carbon tax, and I said, well, this is an issue where the Supreme Court has already rendered a decision. So we have to find other ways to address issues of affordability for our, for our citizens. I've also uh, received advice that because we have new information that has come up, we can relitigate issues at the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court, it's not like double jeopardy. It's not like a murder case. Once they um, render a decision, if new information becomes available, you can relitigate. My intention would be to do that on the carbon tax, especially since the uh, invasion of Ukraine has created so much world calamity in energy security and energy prices. It's creating a massive affordability problem for our seniors and most, most vulnerable. And I don't think any of those arguments made it into the initial debate about how to address emissions reduction. I think as well, we've also seen our business community has done an amazing job of setting aggressive targets for carbon neutrality and emissions reductions. And I would like to be able to support them on that. In fact, I've indicated to the Prime Minister when I spoke with him last week that we would be sending a delegation with the federal delegation to COP27, because I think that talking about all of the ways in which carbon technology, carbon capture, carbon storage is being used here in addition to our hydrogen economy. I think these are going to factor into our new um, arguments that we make to the Supreme Court that we have another way of reaching the same target. So that's how I look at it. Um, I, Ted Morton has been a longtime friend of mine, and he wrote a book called The Court Party, and he has always acknowledged that there's this conversation that happens between the legislatures and the courts. It's part of the reason a notwithstanding clause exists, is that we have certain sections of our Charter of Rights and Freedoms that if we disagree with the federal ruling, ruling parliamentary supremacy uh, takes precedence. So we have a very unique environment. There's not really very many other nations in the world that have this system where you have two different levels of government with sovereign powers, as well as having a Supreme Court that can be overridden with a notwithstanding clause. And so we are going to take the the issues as they arise. But my intention would be to fight vigorously all the way to the level of the Supreme Court, hope we can make the best arguments, and if new information becomes available, if we end up losing, to, to find an opportunity to relitigate on those. But we will be defending our constitutional jurisdiction vigorously. Thanks. I don't think that answered my question, so I want to come at it another way. Sure. You have stated uh, two things. I mean, you said it there, said the Supreme Court's paramount. September 6th, you put out a note saying, we'll ignore the court if we have to. So I'm not sure where you stand on it. So let me just take that Sovereignty Act away, free vote away, Constitution away. And your first day as Premier, will you commit to effecting change within the rule of law or outside the rule of law? Well, again, uh, Dean, like... I don't think it's, it's, a, it's a binary... Choices. Uh, you know, I, I would have loved, and I asked the Prime Minister if he would accept the court ruling that came out of the Alberta Court of Appeal that had four to one saying that the, the Bill C-69 was a violation of our Constitution and a unilateral rewriting of our Constitution around natural resource policy. And to have 10 provinces join us in that litigation, we'd actually be able to solve things with our federal government very easily if they would just recognize they passed a wholly unconstitutional piece of legislation that, that uh, violates our rights to develop our resources. But they're in a position where they're going to keep on fighting all the way to the Supreme Court, yes, and I hope we no, win. The Supreme Court. Affect, the Supreme Court is the ultimate. The Supreme Court is the ultimate. The Supreme Court is the ultimate arbiter. So you will. You will. I will abide by the, by the Supreme, by right, the Supreme Court. Dean. The Supreme Court is the ultimate arbiter, 
and, that, and this is the reason why we have multiple levels of court. You often find that there's a single judge making a ruling at a lower court level that gets overturned at an appeal court level that then gets overturned at the Supreme Court level. On, a, on Supreme Court rulings, I have, said, I have said that when things get decided by the Supreme Court, that we will abide by the decision of the Supreme Court. But you bet, we're up, up until that point, we are vigorously going to defend every area of our, our constitutional you. jurisdiction. Sounds like you're not going to uh, accept the decision on the carbon tax, the price on carbon. You've talked about the invasion of uh, uh, Ukraine, but the decision by the Supreme Court is dealing with jurisdiction, you know, the federal jurisdiction, the Constitution. Nothing has changed on that front. You're mentioning some events, but when they talked about it, the court decision is based on jurisdiction. And what, what has changed in the, on that front in terms of jurisdiction in the Constitution? I, th I think we have to realize that what um, the way that, that case was argued is that nobody agreed on the basic facts that were put forward in the case. But Alberta was then saying, uh, we are going to not take this action, whereas Ottawa said we are going to take this action. What I have read from that is that we have a great deal of latitude to establish policy and a framework in our own way. And I would give the example of the, uh, the, the plastics ban that took place. We had the opportunity to establish a framework for how we would recycle plastics that actually made sense in our environment. We chose not to. They came through with a policy at the federal government that we oppose, and now we're going through the court to, to fight it. If we had just established a proper framework for how we wanted to deal with plastics pollution, then we wouldn't be having this litigation. Same issue uh, coming up on building codes. There, there's a reason why building codes are decided at the provincial level. It's because you have to build differently when you've got hurricanes versus earthquakes versus tornadoes and, and hailstorms and water damage here. And yet we are walking into a position where we're about to sign on to the federal government deciding our building codes. We're not going to do that. We're going to indicate that provincial jurisdiction around building codes will stand, and we're going to make sure that we are, are taking responsibility for that. So the way I look at the way our country is supposed to work is that if we fail in our principal role of legislating in an emerging area, the federal government will legislate for us. I assure you, we will not fail in legislating in areas of our jurisdiction and give Ottawa that opportunity. That's how I see the Supreme Court guiding us on what we need to do with future policy. So that being said, I don't think that we made any argument in, um, at the federal level about how we have 90% of our electricity grid is powered by fossil fuels and almost 100% of our home heating is powered by fossil fuels. It's a totally different argument in eastern Canada where they have nuclear and, uh, and hydroelectric power. That that should matter in the conversation about how you're going to reduce emissions. Meanwhile, we have a very effective program with the TIER program that puts carbon pricing on industrial emissions that has a, an enormous amount of buy-in from our business community. And that, to me, is something that we can build on. In addition, we've got small modular nuclear that our oil sands operations want to start developing. We've got the hydrogen economy that is, is beginning to build out. We're, we're beginning to see at, see at scale carbon capture and utilization. These are the kind of things that I think allow us to offset our emissions in a way that doesn't penalize those who are, can least afford to pay it. That has to form part of the conversation. I think we failed to make those arguments. But it's become even more urgent now that we see the uh, disruption in global supply chains, now that we see the disruption in the global energy world, and now that we see the massively escalating, uh, escalating prices. Um, I feel like Dean here, I didn't really think you answered the question, but on a, on a you, you, topic, you mentioned that you have the power, of course, to uh, nominate um, yourself as a candidate. Uh, why not do that for Calgary Elbow? No, you said on Saturday 
that you didn't want to open the floodgates to rolling by-elections. But right now, people who said they're leaving are staying on to the next election, with the exception, of course, of Doug Schweitzer, that's Calgary Elbow, and McAuliffe Fry, who is stepping down to give you a seat. Um, why not then just nominate somebody and have a by-election there? Because it does give the impression that you're afraid the UCP could lose that by-election. They have not completed their by-election process. I know of at least three and perhaps four candidates who want to put their name forward. I would be put in a position where I would have to appoint somebody in that riding and, and interfere in the process, which has caused a lot of hurt feelings in the past. The board told me that they wanted to have an open and fair competition. My, my personal um, values and my personal way of, of how I want to represent a riding is very consistent with what I see in my own riding of Livingston McLeod, which is a rural riding. I moved out there on purpose in 2011, and I want to represent a rural riding. So it made sense for me to, to run in Brooks Medicine Hat and for uh, the, 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 uh, the, the members of Calgary Elbow to choose the type of candidate that they think is going to, to best reflect that community and also be able to win that, that race. And they've asked me to, to put that on hold. We, we have the ability to, um, when you're less than a year out, to allow for um, a vacancy. And uh, Minister Tyler Shandro has been selected by the Speaker to be the overseer of that constituency. I asked him this morning if there were any major issues that have come onto his radar since the riding had been open and he has not had to intervene on anything, but he'll continue to, to steward that riding. Yeah, same as how, uh, in the meantime, while the riding is vacant in Brooks Medicine Hat, uh, Drew Barnes has been selected to make sure that he's managing. And this is, again, a choice of the, the speaker, and so he'll be overseeing the issues in that riding for the, until, the, uh, until the election is determined. Hi, Premier Smith. Thanks for taking our questions yeah. today. Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe has said he's prepared to take legal actions over the federal government's regulation on pollution. I'm wondering if you'll wait for the Alberta Sovereignty Act and, of course, for your MLA's free vote on that proposed piece of legislation to jump in and follow Saskatchewan's lead, or if you're ready to sort of take that jump without the Alberta Sovereignty Act. Well, I, th I think what you've seen is that we have the ability to defend our jurisdiction even without the Sovereignty Act. I think the Sovereignty Act puts a process in place that will allow for decisions to be debated fully in the legislature. But uh, Tyler Shandro gave a, an example of how we can assert our authority when he indicated policing was an area of provincial jurisdiction, property and civil rights, area of provincial jurisdiction. Our policing contract allows us to choose our policing priorities, which are gun smuggling and crime in Calgary and Edmonton and uh, and in rural communities, that is our policing priority, not confiscating firearms that were legally purchased. And Saskatchewan followed suit and Manitoba followed suit. So we have the ability to defend our constitutional authority in a multitude of different ways. We can do it the way that Minister Shandro did. We can also do it the way that Scott Moe is proposing. We can do it the way British Columbia has done by uh, asking for a formal exemption from the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act. The main thing is setting the tone that we are going to make sure that we fully exercise our areas of jurisdiction granted to us under the Constitution. And so I don't think we need to wait to work in, in uh, concert with our, our friends and allies in Saskatchewan and Manitoba. I had great conversations with both Premier Moe as well as Premier Stephenson, and I think we are going to find lots of areas of common ground. Sure. As a follow-up, Last week, Premier Jason Kenney, former Premier Jason Kenney, I should say, announced $10 million for frontline humanitarian efforts in Ukraine. That brings our total contributions here in Alberta to over $23 million. Some Albertans believe the government should prioritize needs here at home. Now, you even mentioned today, you know, the need to protect Alberta's most vulnerable. I'm wondering what we'll be able to see from you in coming weeks about 
announcing funding for international humanitarian efforts mm -hmm. or if you're going to commit to keeping money in this province. You know, I, I, um, I'm very supportive of the decision that the Premier made in, in supporting uh, the Ukrainian population. We have a large expatriate Ukrainian population in Alberta, and I would hope that we would be able to do no more. I know that there are a number of people who have, uh, with, with various groups, expressed an interest in sponsoring refugees, and they've faced some barriers and difficulty at the federal level. So I think that that would be the best way that we would be able to, to lend a hand and support. But I'll, I'll reserve judgment until I have a chance to, to talk, to get a, a briefing on intergovernmental affairs as well as talk to my caucus and cabinet on that. But I'm, I'm supportive of, this, of the decisions that we've made so far. And I should just mention, I think uh, former Premier Ed Stelmack and uh, former Minister Thomas Lukasik have just shown amazing leadership in putting together a, a community of support so that not only can they provide safe haven to um, those who have been able to make it here, but also to provide emergency supplies. And I, that kind of grassroots effort uh, I, I, needs to be commended, but also if we can find a way to, uh, to, to provide support so they can do more of it, I'd be very open to those conversations as well. So there could be a made in Alberta solution. You look at uh, Quebec has its own cap and trade system. BC has its own. <laughs> Would you commit to building a made in Alberta strategy when it comes to environmental policy, when it comes to a carbon tax policy, and seek equivalency before going the, the sovereignty after going the court route? 100%. That's, that's what we should have done. That was the lesson out of the, out of the carbon tax ruling, is that we need to fully occupy the legislative space, otherwise the federal government is going to step in and be able to make the case that we're, that we're not answering the question. So I would, I'm going to make sure um, to talk with our new energy minister, new environment minister, new deputy minister of energy, new deputy minister of environment, and make sure that we have those fulsome conversations to decide what the pathway forward would be. We will need to have a position going in into COP27, and so the, we're, it's a bit premature at this stage to, uh, to, to, uh, to, to say what that is going to be, but I have spent the last several years talking to a multitude of business leaders about carbon neutrality and what their plans are, how they're going to get there, and I think that uh, that is what our international commitment is. We can do it our own way. I, I, when I spoke with the Prime Minister, I asked him if there was an opportunity for us to engage with the, um, on the Paris Accord's green transfer mechanism so that if we reduce emissions in other places in the world that we get credit for it here, I think that's going to be central in us exporting LNG and displacing higher polluting fuels like coal and wood and, uh, other, and other more polluting fuels. And so if we can work with our federal counterparts to be able to get that kind of credit here um, and accelerate some of the expansion of our LNG, I think that those are the kind of uh, global wins and local wins that we're looking for. So we will, we will have a full strategy that we map out, but those have been the things that I've been talking about on the campaign trail. And, and I would hope that we would be able to have a fully made an Alberta solution on, uh, on addressing issues of carbon neutrality. Uh, so I could chair the cabinet meeting today. <laughs> that was one of the reasons that there. It's, it's, no, it's not your cabinet. It's the, the predecessor's cabinet. 
You know, we are the same political party, and I have great admiration for uh, for, for for most of the, the people around that table and the job that they have done in those roles. And so my intention going into our meetings will be, I don't want to just frivolously make changes or capriciously make changes. I, I do want to have some stability. We, we did, as a UCP party, get elected on a particular mandate. And to the extent that we can continue pursuing that mandate, I gather that the former premier had 370 five agenda items. I think he managed to uh, check off 300 of them. To the extent that we can continue implementing the agenda that we got the mandate on, I'd, I'd like to be able to do that. But I, I want to be part of the cabinet discussion. And so that's the reason why I was sworn in earlier. I want to do the due diligence of making sure that I have full briefings before I make any decisions about cabinet changes. But we're doing that in, in fairly, in fair, I think, relatively quickly, having that all in place by October the, the 24th. Now, in terms of your predecessor, did you get? He made. He promised to have an orderly transition, as he called it, hmm. with you. Did, did you? Did you have a, a, a chance to talk to the former premier? Did you get that orderly transition? I did not. I reached out to him, and he did. Um, we, he has not uh, accepted my invitation for a meeting. Premier, I just need to ask you about health leadership. You've talked a lot about um, making changes as far as provincial health leadership goes. What about Dr. Dina Henshaw? Do you see retaining her as your primary uh, public health advisor, and why or why not? No, I will get new um, advice on, on public health. I appreciate the work that uh, Dr. Dina Henshaw has done, but I think that we are in a new phase where we are now talking about treating coronavirus as endemic as we do influenza, and so I will be developing a, a new team of, um, of public health advisors. Is she still employed right now with the government? She is. Sorry, but can I get back to the thing about Premier Kenny not accepting <laughs> your invitation for a phone call? I mean, how do you feel about that? And why do you think that is? You know, I think the Premier needs a little bit of time, and I'm prepared to give him a little bit of time. It's a big adjustment, and he was going flat out right to the very end, as you saw. And so I just want to be respectful as he processes uh, everything that he is going through. I think it became it was a big surprise to him when he didn't get the mandate that he wanted back in April, that's when the vote was, May, thank you. And I think it's pretty clear that he had a preferred candidate in this race and it wasn't me. So I have asked my uh, cabinet and my caucus to reach out to him, know that I still admire him greatly. Remember um, Premier Kenny and I, a former Premier Kenny and I, do I still keep his honorific? The, I'm not sure how to refer to the former Premier, but uh, he, he and I go back to very early days when I met him at the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Um, he assisted me many times along the way in my political journey, and so I look at these current problems we have as temporary. He has done uh, so much to restore the investor confidence in our business climate, He's done so much to attract investment. He's done a lot to advance environmental, social governance principles to keep billions of dollars flowing into our province. Those are all things I want to continue. We just had a couple of disagreements on two big policy areas that I think ultimately tripped him up as leader. And I'm, uh, I'm hoping, hoping that through this election process that we went through, we can correct some of those and get back on, on the track that he had started. So I'll just give him a little bit of time. I'm, I don't think it's... Uh, I don't think it's unreasonable for somebody who's had the, the three and a half years he has. Premier, there's a lot of people you're working with right now who uh, ran against you in the UCP election. I'm wondering, are you facing any sort of hostility from other party members who may be resentful that uh, one of the candidates they prefer to win didn't win? No. 
Uh, only hostility I see is on Twitter, which is why I tend not to spend much time on Twitter. Uh, the I, I feel like everyone is very keen to make sure that they're playing a constructive role in keeping our, our party and our movement together. There's a number of us who have some bruises for having the party split apart and try to be brought back together again. I know how painful it is in trying to go through a unity process, and I think we are all committed. We do not want to see this movement divide one more time. And so there are issues that we have to deal with that came up during the campaign. Campaigns are um, an exciting time to exchange ideas. And so one of the processes we'll go through at the caucus meeting is that all of the ideas that came out from all of the leadership candidates will be put on the table so that we can prioritize what we want to do in the fall, what we want to do the spring, and what we want to campaign on. As you know, I only campaigned on a very small number of issues because I'm, I wanted to be respectful of the caucus and cabinet making process. So I, I campaigned on reforming Alberta Health Services, on uh, changing the Human Rights Act to ensure that vaccine choice is a protected area and you cannot discriminate on the basis of vaccine choice, as well as the Sovereignty Act. I've also talked about how we would create a framework for health spending accounts, especially to deal with the mental health crisis that we have among our kids, as well as how we would be able to invest more in, in education assistance in the classroom to help bring kids up to grade levels. So those are the, the, the very small number of things that I, that I campaigned on. But there's some great ideas from the other candidates. And I think as we go through and put those on the table, that will, that will help forge the unity. So it's um, leadership races are a little rough and tumble. And that's just the nature of them. Now, you said earlier uh, you wanted to be sworn in as quickly as possible to continue the mandate Albertans gave the UCP. Um, how does that really play uh, a role here with the Alberta Sovereignty Act, considering fewer than 2% of, uh, of people who could vote in Alberta, or rather representative of people who could vote in Alberta, actually voted for it? The, I think you have to remember how uh, former Premier Kenny campaigned when he won his mandate. He campaigned by getting tough with Ottawa. And he tried a couple of different things. He tried a number of different court challenges. He tried to put out a hand of friendship with uh, Premier Francois Legault to jointly work on developing and exporting LNG. He also... Uh, allowed us to have an equalization referendum. He also did a Fairness Alberta panel discussion all through the province. So I feel like there are there is a mandate to get tough with Ottawa. We've tried a few things that haven't worked, and just affirming that we are going to defend our constitutional authority and defend the fact that we are a signatory to the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, that shouldn't be controversial. I know it'll be a bit of a change because we've acted like a subordinate level of government, but I feel that when you are going to change the relationship, you should give notice. So I, I do believe that we have a, a mandate to get tougher with Ottawa, and this is just going to be the next phase in uh, attempting to change that relationship. Because here's the thing. Like, if Ottawa had been respectful to us when we told them... Congratulations to our new premier. Oh. And uh, uh, my question is, as we have uh, next general elections uh, almost in seven months, so what will be in the, your priority list so that Albertans can re-elect you? The, uh, the things that I campaigned on were uh, the health spending accounts, making sure that our kids are brought up to speed so that we don't have learning loss, that we address the learning loss that happened from the disruption in their education over the last couple of years, the Sovereignty Act, changing the Human Rights Act, and restructuring Alberta health care. So those would be the, the main things that we are going to, to, to work on. And there will be a few other things that come up after a caucus discussion. But can I just, can I just go back to the earlier question? Because... When we had the equalization referendum and got a 62% mandate on it, 
That was us asking the federal government to engage in a constructive discussion with us about how to reform our relationship. That was the mechanism. And a lot of the legal scholars at the time said that by having that constitutional change, that it would initiate a process where that would compel Ottawa to come to the table to have those meaningful discussions. Instead, a few days after, he appointed Environment Minister Stephen Gibault, who has done nothing but attack our industry, not just our oil and gas industry, but also our agriculture and agri-food industry as well. So I feel like we have reached out and we have tried to meet them halfway and we have not been met halfway. And now we have to take a, a, we have to take a step that will affirm that we intend to operate in our areas of jurisdiction. If, if they are not going to be constructive in helping us to meet with the German Chancellor so we can get an LNG deal or develop economic corridors with our neighbours so that we can get our products to market, we're going to have to take the lead on doing that ourselves. I'd love to work collaboratively with the federal government on that, but we've faced nothing but hostility for the last seven years, so we have to try something new. Premier, on the question of health care and Alberta Health Services, and you, you've been very clear on your position there, but at the same time, those in the medical field are saying cleaning house right away could destabilize the system. So what are you going to do to keep our system, which is already on the brink of of very dangerous times for the healthcare system, what are you going to do to keep it stable during that transition? I want our frontline workers to know reinforcements are coming. We, we cannot continue understaffing our hospitals and then forcing our, our frontline workers to work mandatory overtime and be called in on, on days off and have to cancel their holidays. That's been the situation for the last two and a half years. And a, a lot of that problem was created by policies at Alberta Health Services of having mandatory vaccinations. So it prevented us from being able to hire back everyone who had been let go up until about two and a half months ago when Cabinet directed them to end the mandate, prevented us from being able to graduate students across the full range of professions because they also had vaccine mandates. It prevented us from being able to hire from other jurisdictions uh, through the full range of people who would have otherwise wanted to come here because of vaccine mandates. So they actually, at the management level, made things even worse for our front line. And when you see that kind of poor management, especially since the Premier gave them direct instruction, I remember this very clearly, because everyone said, okay, well, if this is about saving the healthcare system, let's give them the time, let's give them the money, and let's let them do it. He gave them direct instruction to increase surge capacity by 1,100 beds. And then when the Delta variant came along, they admitted they hadn't done that, that they had reduced surge capacity. So this is a management problem. It is not a problem with our frontline workers. Our frontline workers need to be supported. And when it happens in a, in a business, when they fail to meet targets and they fail to meet direction, you change the management. And so that's what we're going to do. We're, we're going to change the management. I'm wondering if you have a timeline on that and where these, these healthcare workers are coming from. They're in hot demand across the world right now. Where are we going to find enough? staff to staff the surge capacity if we've been unable to until now and being told by front lines that there's no one coming, they don't have other people, where are those people coming from and what is that timeline for change in leadership at AHS as well as Alberta Health? Well, well, one thing, because we will not have a vaccine mandate, they will know from all over the world that if they're facing vaccine mandates in their home jurisdiction, they can come here. 
We will have a process as well to be able to recognize credentials. I have uh, an excellent citizenship and immigration minister in Casey Madu, who I've talked many, many months about how we would be able to do fast track recognition of foreign credentials, and we will do that. We also have some wonderful colleges like uh, Maccabee College that uh, graduates 4,000 LPNs and nursing aides every year. Half of them go to the United States. We're going to encourage them to stay here. We uh, also, I think, have a number of people who have been burnt out and left the system because of the poor management and poor working conditions. If we can give them a promise that we're not going to burn them out, maybe they'll return. Maybe if we show some respect for our frontline workers and show how much we care about their working conditions and the quality of life that they have, maybe so many wouldn't leave in the first place and others will come back in. It's worth a, it's worth a shot because I think what we've seen over the last two and a half years is that the working conditions that have been created by Alberta Health Services have, have caused so many people to leave the system. I'm told by a dear friend who's a paramedic that are in EMS, we have an, a, a, a turnover of five years. Can you imagine all of that training that goes into that person? And after five years, those are, they're so burnt out, they want to leave the system. We've got to do a better job of making sure people want to commit to the system and they want to stay and they are excited to come to work in the morning. So I don't think that it's a personnel shortage. I think it's a working conditions problem. And I think if we create the right conditions, people will return. What about Thanks, though, on AHS and Alberta Health? Very quickly, before the end of the year. We're going to go to one more in the room, and then I have to go on the phone lines. There's quite a few people in the queue. Smith, uh, what is the message that you wish to take to COP27? Hmm. The message I would take to COP27 is that natural resources, its development, its conservation policy, and its export are the exclusive jurisdiction of the provinces under our constitution, under Section 92A. And so if there are any issues or questions about how those policies should be enacted, they need to come and talk to the provincial level of government. I'll also take the message um, in speaking with the great leadership that I think has happened among some of our largest co uh, companies. The Pathways Project, for instance, they've set an aggressive carbon neutrality um, uh, uh, target. Dow, Dow Chemical is at a, a carbon neutrality project for their new petrochemical plant. Air Products has a carbon neutrality target for their petrochemical plant. I think people just need to know that our largest industry here is using innovation to address this issue. I don't think that that message has come through. And so if it needs to have the voice of an Alberta delegation there to make sure that we are being represented, then, then we're going to have that representation. Quite frankly, when the German Chancellor visited here, and we had the Prime Minister say that there was not a business case to export LNG and took the Chancellor to a demonstration project in Newfoundland where one day green hydrogen might be made out of wind turbines. That shows me that the Prime Minister is not able to get our message out. That if we're going to get our message out, we have to do it ourselves. So I have been very clear about being supportive of export of LNG and how it will reduce global emissions, the incredible carbon tech options that are being developed, not only for, for capture and storage, but also for utilization, as well as hydrogen, small modular nuclear. I want people to know that our industry has taken this seriously and that, um, and as a result, we're, we need to engage in the process where these decisions are being made so that they do not make decisions that are going to tr uh, cause our industry to be transitioned out. What I see from the federal government is that I think we have a, a good partner, potentially, in Energy Minister Jonathan Wilkinson. I think he drives a hydrogen vehicle, so that's, a, that's good. But I've seen nothing but hostility, quite frankly, from the Environment Minister Stephen Gibbo, and that's why I, I do not trust that our message will get out by relying on them to deliver that message. We need to deliver it ourselves. So by way of a follow-up, can we just return to the 
to the, the, the health issue, you pledged to introduce, I think it was 300 beds, ICU beds, as an immediate priority, but you have to have people to demand them, to, if I can use that expression, to, to provide the service. How do, you, how do you do that at short notice? Let, let me tell you the approach that um, that I want to take. One of the things that I have heard, and I, I will uh, once we have the, a task force established to go and visit every facility, one of the things that you hear on the campaign trail is the number of acute care beds that are uh, filled by patients who are waiting placement in long-term care. And part of what happens is a person gets into some distress and then they come into hospital and they're too sick to go back to their home, but not really sick enough to be in hospital. But because of the system we have of moving patients into long-term care, they can be waiting for months or longer. We, um, I've spoken to the Continuing Care Association. They have 20 to 30% vacancy in their long-term care facilities, which is about 1,000 beds. So if there was a way for us to work with them to collaboratively move 500 patients from Calgary and Edmonton to create the room in our main hospitals in Calgary and Edmonton, that I think would do uh, make an immediate effect of taking the pressure off. And then we would continue to work slowly over time to make sure that those patients are in a more appropriate facility. I mean, if I was a, a waiting uh, long-term care placement. I sure wouldn't want to be in a hospital room. In fact, most seniors want to be in their own home. So why don't we fund home care as our first priority, as well as make sure that our seniors know that there is a program available to help them renovate their homes. Um, many of the people you'll talk to in long-term care will tell you that if we had proper home care, as well as able to to bring in ramps or change out bathrooms, 90% of our seniors would be able to age in place. And that's a better environment for everyone. It's a safer environment for them. It's a, also a more comfortable environment. It's what they tell us that we want. So I would say our big priority is going to make sure that we, we uh, bring those patients into an appropriate facility, and then, we, uh, then we'll assess how much capacity we've got remaining in our hospitals. And then we'll also have to work on training up. Our, um, all of our staff so that, that we, can, we can meet surge capacity. I, I'm looking forward to talking with the nurses union, the respiratory therapists, the anesthetists as well, to understand if there is a way that we can structure our system so that we have permanent employees, but knowing that when we have surge capacity in the fall, is there a way for us to bring in workers to lend a hand during that respiratory virus season? These are all going to, to take negotiation and buy-in, but just to give you an idea of the direction that I'm heading, in addition with um, EMS, they, I mean, if you've watched the CTV story that went, uh, that was aired a couple of, I think just yesterday on this, we, we, we clearly have made a wreck of, a, of, a, of ambulance services. And it's been successive governments under successive banners who have done it. So let's, uh, I mean, let's, I think everyone has to take responsibility for thinking that they, that they could do it better in a central planning model. They cannot. And so one of the things that we have to make sure that we do is that when ambulances show up at a hospital, there is an effective way to offload patients and onboard them in hospital to somebody who can provide continuous care and get those those vehicles back out into the field. I have consulted with numerous paramedics and gone to numerous town halls on this over the last 10 years, and it's a matter that we, we have to stop having everybody be very guarded over their own scope of practice. We have to have all hands on deck in full scope of practice and try some new things to make sure that we solve this problem because it goes to what's creating a terrible working environment for our frontline workers and it's also the cause of burnout but it's also getting very dangerous that when you have people who are waiting for hours in the back of an ambulance or 
20 plus hours on the floor of an emergency room. This is not acceptable level of performance. It has to be changed. Thanks, Premier. We're going to... I, um, I have... Uh, um, I'm going to get a briefing um, on healthcare later today. I'll have a better idea of what the timeline is, but the, uh, uh, my, my intention would be to have a, a new governance structure in place within 90 days. Thanks, Premier. We're going to head to the phone lines. We have quite a few people in the queue. Uh, operator, do you want to put through the first caller, please? Rick Bell, Calgary Sun. Uh, congratulations, Premier, and uh, thank you for taking my call. Uh, I think that's the longest wait I've ever experienced in my life. Um, anyway, I just want to go back to the beginning where I believe it was uh, Graham and Dean who asked you about the Sovereignty Act, but I want to ask in a different way because I want to be clear on what I thought I heard. Because during the campaign, I heard from people like Barry Cooper, people like Rob Anderson, talking about the idea it doesn't matter what the Supreme Court says. So I'm just going to lead you through it very quickly. Let's say you pass the Sovereignty Act. Let's say you identify an area where there's federal government overreach. Let's say you won't enforce that federal law or policy that you consider overreach. Let's say you take it to court. Let's say it goes, or let's say the feds take you to court. Let's say it goes to the highest court in the land. At that point, if the Supreme Court of Canada rules against Alberta, against that particular use of the Sovereignty Act, will you stand down and accept the court ruling, or will you, as many people were led to believe, ignore it? Simple question. Look, in a specific application of the act, if you're ruled against, do you accept it? I guess, I guess we'll see how that plays out because we might have an example of that because the ball is now in their court since we've already asserted we are not going to enforce their gun confiscation scheme. So I guess we'll see how they end up reacting to that and we'll see how it ends up playing out. I've received advice from a former Supreme Court judge that gun control and property and civil rights are provincial matters and that we'd probably win it. So that's the, the, the first example I would I would uh, see might be the, the initial test case. But l look, Rick, I, I'm trying to, I know, I know the way our country works is a bit unusual, but we, we have a system where it's a conversation between the legislatures and the courts, and the courts don't always get it right, the provincial legislatures don't always get it right, the federal government doesn't always get it right. That's why if a court decision comes down as you described, we'd have to bring it back, take a look at it, see if there's a way to modify the legislation so we can maintain the intent, see if, we, uh, if there's no way to be able to modify it, or see if there's an, uh, another way that we can go forward and try to achieve the same ends. People are acting as if we don't have these skirmishes. We have them all the time. Provinces um, pass legislation that ends up getting challenged. Provincial, federal governments pass legislation that ends up getting challenged. It takes years sometimes to wind its way through the court. This is the conversation that we have as a, as a Canadian uh, political body. And I, I know it's a little bit alarming for Alberta to finally say we've had enough of how the country is, uh, is run. We've had enough of how Justin Trudeau is treating us, but we have had enough because we have tried three times to find some common ground with them. And all three times, they have, uh, have slammed the door in our face. So we are now going to take the lead on making sure we get our own resources to market and we protect our citizens here and that we defend our, all of our areas of jurisdiction. So I, I, do, I can't speak on any of the specifics you're referring to, but I, I think that uh, watching what happens with the federal government um, acknowledging that they need us to enforce a bad piece of legislation they passed, uh, I guess we'll have to see what their next step is. 
Rick, do you have a follow-up? Yeah, well, well as, as I think Dean and Graham said earlier in this uh, marathon session, I don't think that's the question I asked. I just basically said during the campaign there were people uh, explaining the Sovereignty Act as meaning that if the Supreme Court of Canada ruled against you, it would not matter. You would continue with not enforcing that federal law or policy. If the if the if the Supreme Court of Canada said that the feds win on this application of the Sovereignty Act, you brought it forward. Sorry, Alberta, you're shot down. I think a lot of people who voted for you thought that that meant hmm. that you would persist anyway. Well, I, otherwise, I don't think so, Rick. I mean, I I was different. That's no. what Jason Kenney was doing. Well, hold on a sec. I, <laughs> Look, hold on a sec, because I, I know that there has been um, things that have been claimed about what I, what I ran on, and um, I always try to offer clarity. It's, it's very true that the free Alberta strategy, I did not adopt holus bolus. I, there are a number of ideas that were in there that, quite frankly, I didn't think we could do constitutionally. Um, but on the issue of the Sovereignty Act in particular, the nut of the idea, I think, was a good one. But this is the job of politicians. This is what our entire policy-making process is, is about when we have our AGMs, is that somebody comes forward with an idea, and it's our job to figure out how to operationalize it and figure out how to pass it so that it does pass um, muster in our legislature, so it does get royal assent by our lieutenant governor, and so that it can withstand legal challenge. So, yes, you're quite right. It's not a perfect application of what the original idea was, but I felt it was my job to look at the Constitution, see what was possible, find out the ways in which the federal government interferes with our jurisdiction. I was astonished to find how many ways they interfere with our jurisdiction and also indicate that we were going to defend the, the, the charter rights of our citizens. The reason why it's not a clear answer is because we are a combination system uh, between the UK and the US. In the US, they have a, a Bill of Rights that has that kind of Supreme Court as the final say. In the UK, the Supreme Court offers an opinion, but it's parliamentary su supremacy that has the final say. We created a hybrid with the notwithstanding clause that allows for the conversation to take place between our legislative uh, branches and our, our judicial branch. And so it's not a very clear answer. It's a living tree, as they like to say. It's a conversation between the, the courts and the and the, uh, the the legislatures. And it's, it's, it's also... Um, uh, complicated by the fact that we have so many powers that have been granted to us as exclusive jurisdiction in our Constitution. We are a very unique country that way. And so my intention is to support the Supreme Court um, when they make a, a decision, because people asked me if I was just going to ignore the carbon tax ruling. I said, well, the Supreme Court has ruled on that. We'll have to find another way to be able to address these issues. So I have to find another way to address these issues. I want to relitigate it on the basis of the things that I mentioned to you that I think is new information. I want to find a way to be able to offset emissions in a different way so that we don't have to penalize our seniors um, and, and vulnerable uh, on their electricity and power bills. So finding an alternative pathway to, to achieve the end goal will take a number of different forms. And I guess we'll, we'll have that conversation together. But I, I think we have to realize that Canada is a very complex country and it isn't a black and white answer. Thanks, Premier. We have time for two more questions. Operator, can you go to the next caller, please? Colin Gallant, Medicine Hat News. Hello, can you hear me? I can. Oh, sorry about that. Is that, that. Alex? Rick thought he had to wait a, it is. Rick thought he had to wait a long time. Um, I was just wondering uh, if you can give me some color about what your expectations 
I guess, R for the by-election date down here. I don't think we heard a date. Um, but the by-election campaign in general, you've talked a little bit about, uh, you know, having a mandate to put forward some of your uh, larger planks of your campaign um, and that you wanted to give a voice to, to, you know, rural Alberta by picking this location. I'm just wondering what, do you consider it to be, is there a big issues debate coming up here? Um, would you like to have that? And, I mean, there are a number of, of issues that, you know, like uh, rural police force is, there's a very split opinion in rural communities about it, unpaid property taxes, etc. What would you like to talk about to voters? That's not. Well, Alex, you got first stab at me on Saturday when I was down in uh, in Medicine Hat, and so uh, thanks again for being on the on the line today. So the by-election uh, cabinet decision that came down today would be that we've selected a date of November the eighth. There is a period of time where the results have to be validated. So the earliest I'm told I would be able to be in the legislature is November the 29th, at which point we would have four weeks to be able to pass the agenda items that uh, we determine are the priority at our caucus retreat. So that um, would be the time frame we'd be looking at. And I think uh, the final uh, a Thursday of that week is December 22nd. So that would be, I think, our intention for the fall session would be to have it run from November 29th to December 22nd. The, um, as for the local issues, you, you may know from when I ran before, uh, even though I was leader of the party, I took part in local debates because those are vitally important to be able to hear the local issues. And I've already heard a great many. I think Michaela Fry did a tremendous job down there with um, making sure that HALO had received long-term funding of five years. We have to make sure that that becomes permanent uh, because STARS is permanently funded. And I don't think that the residents of Medicine Hat and area should be concerned if they have a highway injury, that there's some danger that uh, HALO will be un unfunded. So that would be one priority. Rural policing, of course, is another priority. And our members had uh, had passed a motion that, to have an Alberta provincial police that would either replace or augment the RCMP. So I'm very much in the mode of wanting to have an augmentation to the, RC to the RCMP by creating an Alberta provincial police very quickly so that we can address issues of rural property crime that is often fueled, sadly, by feeding a drug addiction. And so that's why we want to make sure that there's extra hands on deck and that our uh, Alberta Provincial Police are, are trained in the new policing priorities that we have. The new policing priorities is more than 50% of the calls I'm hearing are mental health and addiction calls. And so that will require a different type of training and a different type of officer, quite frankly. And so um, we can have the ability to, to, to chart a new path by establishing the Provincial Police. And I hope I'll be able to, con uh, to convince the constituents of Brooks Medicine Hat that that is the case. Uh, in addition, the Highway 3 upgrade, I've, I've received some, uh, some indication that the amount of traffic on that highway is equivalent to the kind of traffic that we saw on Highway 63 up to Fort McMurray. And when you have harvest and you've got a lot of farm equipment on those roads, at the same time as you're trying to move manufactured homes, is creating danger. There's um, uh, There has been a, a chunk of that um, identified for twinning, but we just need to do that last little bit. So those are the, the issues that I have heard. And in addition, as you know, Medicine Hat is also facing a, a very serious uh, issue with uh, with addiction as well. And so making sure that we've got an appropriate local facility that is going to be able to provide the kind of long-term access to treatment is going to be a priority. I know that there's a community group down there that uh, started in the wake of a rash of suicides from six men in the community. And we, and so I think they've been doing some good work and we want to be able to support them. I should make a note as well on this point that my, I've, I've chosen as my chief of staff, Marshall Smith. He was recently featured 
in a documentary called Vancouver is Dying about uh, the very serious mental health and drug addiction problem that is in Vancouver and very clearly shows the difference between a conservative approach of treatment first versus the approach that we've seen uh, socialist governments take, which sadly has, uh, I think, exacerbated the problem. And the, the stats here are quite remarkable in our approach on mental health and addiction. We've seen a decrease in opioid deaths by 51% year over year, uh, hospitalizations decreased 31%, 39% year over year, ambulance services decreased 39% year over year. So I think that's a testament to that work and it's part of the reason why I, uh, I chose Marshall Smith to be my uh, Chief of Staff. We're going to continue that work and I know we're going to be able to apply it in Medicine Hat as well. Okay, sorry, and quickly on unpaid property taxes for oil field yeah. companies and would you run here again or would you seek a riding uh, closer to home after a general election? Well, my intention is to continue on if the residents of uh, Brooks Medicine Hat affirm me as their candidate the, this first time. The nice part of, that I noticed when I was in Brooks Medicine Hat is the issues are so similar to what I hear in, in Livingston McLeod. Um, as for unpaid property taxes, I, I should, uh, in my former life, I had done some work with the head of the Rural Municipalities Association, Paul McLaughlin, as well as uh, members of EPAC to see if we could find a way of addressing the, um, the problems with linear assessment. If you talk to the pipeline company, Part of the problem they face is that if pipelines go across jurisdictions, their mill rate goes all over the map, and they want to try to get some certainty there. So that's one of the things that I challenge them to, if they could come up with a joint proposal to see if we could move quickly on making some of those amendments. And that will, I think, make it easier for our energy companies to be able to be in compliance with their obligations. I also spent a lot of time in the last year and a half advocating for a royalty credit program on well site cleanup. We have a... a, th a an estimated $30 billion unfunded liability um, on the issue of well site cleanup. And we have a new program coming in in, the fall, in, this, in in January that requires a certain percentage of those sites to be cleaned up. I think that we need to look at some of the worst wells, the flare pits and others that have been around since the 1960s, and develop a process for how we would be able to get those cleaned up. And if we can do that and reduce the, the liability rating on our small and mid-sized producers, I think that will allow them to access capital, which will allow for them to do more drilling. So I'm, I'm highly motivated to see if we can start a a pilot project on that program to see if it will help initiate and build on some of the reclamation work that was done through COVID. There was a billion dollar site rehabilitation program that came from the federal government. Sadly, I don't think we ended up spending all the money that we were allocated just because of some internal um, uh, inefficiencies that developed. But I, I don't think we want to lose any of that momentum. And if we can make sure that we develop a program where the companies that get rewarded are the ones who are in compliance on their municipal t tax bill and in compliance on their, their landowner lease bill, then I, I think that that will benefit not only the, uh, the municipalities who rely on those dollars, but also the companies who want to do continued drilling. Um, one other thing that was flagged for me is the, uh, the, uh, the new drilling program that has cost a couple of municipalities a significant amount of money. I talked to um, uh, Newell County uh, uh, Council, or sorry, Reeve, Arno Dirksen, and he said that because of this uh, reprieve in, in taxes, it has cost his municipality, I think he said something like $7.4 million, which is enormously significant for rural communities. So if we can solve a problem in Newell County, then we can solve it in all of the other counties who are facing that same problem. So I'm, I'm motivated to do that, but want to work a little bit more with the uh, Rural Municipalities Association and EPAC to make that happen. Thanks, Premier. We'll go to our final caller and final question. Operator, go ahead. Harry Tate, Globe and Mail. Hi, thanks for taking my question, Premier. Um, I have a question about 
vaccine choice and how you want to protect that under the Human Rights Act. I'm wondering how um, vaccine choice, um, how you see that is equal to something like race, gender, sexuality, which we protect because those are not about choices. Well, I guess the way I look at it is that the community that faced the most restrictions on their freedoms in the last year were those who made a choice not to be vaccinated. I don't think I've ever experienced a situation in my lifetime where a person was fired from their job or not allowed to watch their kids play hockey or not allowed to go visit a loved one in long-term care or hospital or not allowed to go get on a plane to either go across the country to see family or even travel across the border. So they have been the most discriminated against group that I've ever witnessed in my lifetime. That's a pretty extreme level of discrimination that we have seen. I don't take away any of the discrimination that I've seen in those other groups that you mentioned, but this has been an extraordinary time in the last uh, year in particular. And I want people to know that I find that unacceptable, that we are not going to create a segregated society on the basis of a, of a medical choice. I think that there was a, a lot of hope that the vaccine would offer a sterilizing immunity. And as a result, I think everybody was working very hard to get to a high level of vaccination. We've now seen that it mutates dramatically and we have to start treating it a lot more like influenza. Now influenza has about a one third of the population and decides each year to protect themselves with vaccination. I think we're right now at a level of booster shots of 39% of people deciding to protect themselves. And I think that's the way we have to start talking once again about this particular type of vaccine is that it, it, vaccination really is for self-protection in this case, because you have to make your own choice about what your own medical status is in conjunction with your own doctor and your own pre-existing medical conditions. And we have to stop trying to victimize a, a, a particular group because they've make it, made a different choice. So I know that that's going to be um, a little challenging for, for some people who hold a, who've been holding a different view for a long period of time. But if I need to make the point that this kind of discrimination is unacceptable, the best way to do it is by changing the Human Rights Act. And on um, the Sovereignty Act, if there is the chance that, the, as you said, the Supreme Court is the ultimate arbiter, but you will look for alternate pathways um, mm -hmm. when you sort of hit a roadblock. Can you explain what the teeth of the Sovereignty Act will be then if it comes to the point that the Supreme Court does indeed have the final say? Does this just mean that the government will pause enforcement during the period in which litigation is underway? I, I think you'll, again, as I, as I mentioned, you'll probably see a really interesting conversation play out as we have given the indication that we are not going to participate and assist the federal government in confiscating firearms that have been legally purchased. Um, how they choose to respond to that will then determine what our, our next steps are. Um, and so I would, I would hope that we have very few of these kinds of disagreements. It seems to me that... I'm not going around legislating in the federal area. I'm not trying to open military bases. I'm not trying to um, manage their passport offices, although some of my members have asked me to because they think I'd do a better job of it. I'm not asking to, uh, to take over the management of airports. These are all federal jurisdiction. I respect and recognize that. I wish that they would respect and recognize that the areas enumerated to us 
under our Constitution, Section 92 and 92A, are our areas of exclusive jurisdiction too. So um, to me, respect is a two-way street. I think that they uh, treat Quebec in a very different way than they treat Alberta. And I think if um, Alberta asserts that we want to be treated as a senior partner in Confederation, then I would I would hope that the, the federal government would, would change its approach towards us. I think we will have some common cause with our friends in Saskatchewan and Manitoba, and we will operate the country the way it was intended to. The country was never intended for Ottawa to make all the decisions and for us to just sit back and constantly be going to court to try to get our rights back. Uh, I would hope that by taking this new stance that Ottawa would stop invading our jurisdiction in the first place. And then we can talk about the ways in which we can collaborate on areas of common cause. I think that's how our country is supposed to work. Thanks, Premier. Thanks, Thanks everyone.